1: And welcome to the political party in the middle of another incredible week in British politics. Who knows what will have happened by the time these words leave my mouth and reach your ears. But this is a a wonderful discussion with Patrick O'Flynn, currently the MEP for the East, one of the MEPs, I should say, for the East of England. And until recently, a UKIP MEP. Um, So you can imagine that we talk about Brexit. We also do talk about, Actually, it's not all about, in fact, very little, I would say, majors on Brexit. It's more about being in UKIP, leaving UKIP, um, his own politics, how best to, um, I suppose, achieve his aims, uh, his relationship with uh, the Tory party, joining the SDP, all sorts of things. It's a it's a it's a meander around Eurosceptic UKIP politics, and and it, there are times he really crystallises really well at the differences in the UKIP uh, wings. And I won't tread on anything he says, but he, uh, the analogy gets stretched. Um, but it's a great conversation about Euroscepticism. It's a great conversation about the internal workings of UKIP, about the European Parliament. About leaving the European Union, there's just so much in it. It was, it was, it's a really packed conversation, Um, and of course the discussion that leaving UKIP um, over the influence and appointment of Tommy Robinson and others, um, and why other things would not cause you to leave UKIP. So it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very calm uh, conversation and very insightful and informative. and he was a great guest. And it was, I mean, I always want to spend more time with the guest. But I think, particularly with Patrick, because I really do hope we get to do it again. Because I just think there's so much more I'd want to ask him about. And he's really good at talking about it. Um Now, there are only two live shows left this year. And oh my word. I mean, in terms of putting on live political comedy shows. I, I mean, there can't have ever been a time like it. So the Christmas specials this year are going to be off the scale. 19th of um december i have jess phillips and sarah wollaston on the 20th alistair campbell and nick bowles i know that jess and alistair will both be uh, selling and signing copies of their books so it's a good opportunity to get a gift for uh, for christmas but what an environment to be discussing uh politics at the moment with with a labor and a tory guest each night they're always raucous evenings mp4 are there providing live music there are some tickets left um, you can get them through my website, matford.com slash live. So that's the 19th and the 20th of December at uh, the Leicester Square Theatre. I mean, what a time to be discussing politics live. Um, I'm just so excited. Um, also, I'm on tour next year, going across the country, various places, uh, including Corby, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Newcastle and loads, loads more places. Um, And you can get tickets for all those shows at um, matford.com slash live. So it's my stand-up show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, which I've had to completely update even since Edinburgh because so much has happened. I'll leave you for now in the hands of Patrick Goffey. Delighted to be joined by Patrick O'Flynn, MEP. Uh, Patrick, welcome to the show. Uh, delighted to be here, Matt. It's great to finally meet you properly. We've we've chatted on Twitter for a number of years now. Yeah. Um, it's always nice to to sit down with someone that you've. You feel like you. I mean, there's one of the great things about social media. You feel like you really know people through it.
0: You do. I know that you're obsessed with Nottingham Forest <laughs> and and a few other things. Yeah. Get about ten percent of your time yeah. away from that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, are you Arsenal,
1: is that right or not? Oh, no. Oh, no. God, no. Oh, no. I've made um, a real
0: mistake. Not really. I'm I'm originally Cambridge United, and I saw them at Tranmere on Saturday. Oh, the, wow. In the pouring rain. But in London, I'm a West Ham man.
1: Oh, crikey. I've, I've got that.
0: Well, exciting times for West Ham, to be fair. Uh, yeah, well, I think so. I mean, a lot of people slag off the stadium, but I like the stadium. It just has a sense of grandeur, but it, it needs a good team playing in it. I mean, it it would be a big lump of stadium for a team in the Championship, for instance. So it it needs the team to be playing well, entertainingly, attackingly with flair. But that seems like it might, touch wood, be be starting to happen. It feels
1: like there's a turnaround anyway, certainly from last season when things were getting very um, tense Mm. around the place in uh, in the City of London Stadium. I mean, football's a great way to, uh, I suppose in these febrile times, you know, talking about football, is, is quite a, a welcome break from yeah. Brexit and everything else. Um, now, just in terms of Brexit, and we'll come on mm. to, to UKIP and your, your recent departure from UKIP. In terms of the Prime Minister's deal, which has dominated so much of the news this week, mm. I'm guessing it's something you're completely against.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I would see it objectively uh, as being even worse than being a member of the EU. Uh, you know, Theresa May, I think... Uh, reckons that everyone who voted for Brexit is sort of uh, a knuckle-dragging bigot who just wanted less foreigners in the country. So she's delivered a deal uh, in which the only kind of meaningful change is, uh, in theory, an ability to control immigration. Uh, As it happens, if this deal passes, I think uh, the CBI, et cetera, have shown such lobbying power that it's very difficult to see immigration Uh, being reduced anyway. But nonetheless, that's her mindset. So what she's actually done uh, through this backstop agreement, in in view of uh, of most Brexiteers I know, is to exchange what we would say is 9% residual sovereignty, which is approximately our voting weight in EU institutions, for 0% sovereignty indefinitely in, in this backstop. And She's called that taking back control, so it obviously doesn't pass muster. And further than that, it means any threat she makes that you've got to back my deal or you may end up with no Brexit
1: at all doesn't really cut the mustard uh, and and lacks leverage. There's like two things are becoming more, more likely. One is some form of uh, democratic exercise with the people, whether that's an election or a second referendum or a people's vote, or however people want to frame it. Or no deal. Those two things unlikely a few months ago both seem to be growing in likelihood do you think a no deal would necessarily be the disaster that a lot of people think it would be
0: well no i don't think that but obviously uh, had the government been preparing with gusto uh, for no deal from the outset uh, it would be smoother than than trying to scramble at the last minute you know but people like philip hammond had effectively blocked uh, no deal preparations i mean uh, it's not talking with the benefit of hindsight here, but every strong Brexiteer I know, from Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage downwards, uh, was of the view that we needed to make no deal the default and we needed to be seen preparing for it and investing in it. Uh, and, you know, getting to the brink of trade deals with Donald Trump and other big economies around the world, perhaps uh, new port facilities <clears throat> being built away from Dover to take the pressure off the Dover route. Uh, perhaps preparation for a big buy British campaign in the event that we would be penalised and someone who led the country who could be optimistic and excited excited about that. Had we done all that and maybe just written to the EU and say uh, we think this is going to be very upsetting for you so we don't expect you to offer us a deal but if you want to come and talk about free trade and perhaps ex gratia divorce payment, then knock on the door. Uh, had we done that, then as each month went on, we'd have been in a stronger position and the EU would have been under more pressure, particularly over finance. So uh, that would have been the ideal preparation for no deal and ironically would have made no deal uh, less likely. Uh, but nonetheless... Uh, You know, it's not too late for preparations to be made. I think finally a few are are, are starting. So I don't think so. We're talking about the terms of trade of roughly 12% of UK uh, economic output here, which is a big chunk. But but, uh, you know, the the tariff uh, walls are quite low. Uh, There should be ways of keeping trade routes flowing. So it's what Michael Gove originally, the good Gove of the old days, I would say, described during the campaign as a possible bump in the road.
1: Just into, I mean, the one thing I have real sympathy with politically is the idea that if you had Brexit being delivered by a Brexiteer, the tone would necessarily be different. Mm. They would be being more positive about it. They would be rallying the troops. They'd be convincing more people out in the country. Mm. I think it's very odd to have Brexit delivered by someone who fundamentally disagrees with it. So the tone has always been grave. Yeah. Um, just in terms of, and that's the political side of it, just in terms of the economics of a bump in a road or a no-deal Brexit. There is an acceptance, isn't there, that that leaving on WTO rules would cause at least some short-term economic pain domestically?
0: Uh, Yes, I think so. There would be some friction introduced uh, into trade, that's right. Um, And uh, you'd be relying on on, uh, the the private sector of the economy, the people in that doing their own jobs, creating in their own self-interest, finding uh, the best way uh, to continue trade. I mean... Uh, in a sense, there's there's a certain framework the government can set, and then it's sort of like water finding its way downhill. That you know, that happens because of the resourcefulness of people who work in in private business. And there are all kinds of other ports apart from Dover. There's all kinds of other trade routes. There's all kinds of way uh, ways of hedging or insuring against difficulty. There's all kinds of ability to switch suppliers from from one country to another or even domestically. So, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, the market economy would take care of that. Uh, but nonetheless, you're talking about, you know, a, a disruption to this, this frictionless trade. I
1: and mean, when you see the, people call it cliff edge or whatever, the Nike tick, as I think Boris called it, mm. the, the different economic futures, mm. there, is a, there is a kind of a, a, quite a deep, rapid fall, and then a growth over time.
0: Well, you know, my academic discipline uh, was economics. Uh, I'm an economics graduate. And, uh, you know, that has left me with a a kind of low opinion of the value of economic forecasting. (laughs) You know, it's worse than long-term weather forecasting, you know. Uh, You wouldn't really set much store in a weather Mm. forecast for a month ahead. You know, if you look at all the Treasury forecasts forever, basically – uh, they're always completely wrong, so i don't think you know Boris might characterize it as a as a nike tick i don't know if there's a a sportswear brand that 's got the same <laughs> thing upside down, which some remainers might go for. I think Puma maybe had a he, he would go along a bit and then down uh, but i don't think uh fundamentally you can set any store uh by these forecasts. You have to say a conceptual view that, yes. that i don't fundamentally think uh brexit was mainly about uh Uh, The economy. It was about sovereignty, democratic control, and accountability. But I think people who voted leave uh, took the view that it's doable. It's doable. And perhaps it wasn't doable 20 years or more ago, but the percentage of our trade that was with the EU is falling. Uh, The percentage with other countries uh, was rising. We have this massive trade deficit with the EU. Uh, it's a, we're we're a very high net contributor. That the economics of it, and that the the risk of being in when the eurozone goes pop, which I still think it will, being in the same room, uh, is a is a big downside risk. So on the balance of it, had it been purely about economics, I think Remain would have shaded the vote. But it wasn't. It was just the question in Brexiteers' minds: Is this doable economically? They decided that it was, and I agree with them.
1: Doable, and I suppose a price worth paying. Whenever we talk about bumps in the road or, or graphs or predictions and mm. things, I always have to be mindful that this is people's jobs and people's lives. Mm. So it's about who pays for this short-term gain and anyone losing their job. I always struggle with any of it. I just think mm. if, 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 even if you say, in the long run, it's better... I think it's really hard to tell people in the short term who have lost their job, whose businesses have gone bust, that it's for the greater good. I think it's a really hard message to deliver. Yeah,
0: but every day under our economic system at the moment, uh, people are losing their jobs because of international trade. You know, people, uh, a big company, can source a supplier uh, in South Asia with lower labour costs and suddenly switch. And that means people lose their jobs. So ultimately, the only way to guarantee... Uh, in the short term, no one loses their job is to have a, a complete fortress economy uh, and try and sort of set everything in stone. But mm. as we know from, you know, Soviet experiments, yeah, planned economies uh, tractor production and all that, <laughs> yeah. uh, you get substandard
1: goods and, and eventually the economy completely tanks and everyone loses their job. I'm not sure that's on the table yet. Although let's see if Corbyn, uh, Corbyn <laughs> mentions, although he's pro-Brexit, isn't he, Jeremy Corbyn? This is the great irony of the times. It's it? the
0: great sphinx. It's Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, I think that Hit Corbin and Macdonald are clearly playing this for party politics to let the Tory Party rip itself apart uh, as a way a prelude to a Labour government. But the big question is, uh, what does he see as as the end of this process? Does he see the so-called No Deal Brexit, the clean Brexit, uh, as ideal for him and his future political programme of you know nationalising things, state aid? Uh, all kinds of policies that he probably couldn't get through if we've signed up to customs union or single market rules.
1: Uh, I mean, you've been around politics a long time. You've been a, mm. a, an MEP for a few years, a, a political editor of the Daily Express. Have you ever had any meetings with Corbyn? Have you ever discussed Europe with him?
0: Funnily enough, he's one of the few MPs I can't remember ever sitting down having a coffee with or even a chat in in the members' lobby.
1: It's usually Labour MPs who say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, just thinking back to the days when I was political editor and it was maybe the heyday of Tony Blair, had anyone said in a conversation that bloke in the anorak and the beard, you know, and the and the purple trousers, whatever, walking by, he's going to be leader of the Labour Party one day, uh, you know, it would have just been thought utterly, utterly unbelievable. You know, a joke.
1: But back then, would you ever have seen yourself going into the political fray? Uh,
0: possibly not, no. I mean, uh, my kind of uh, being... I was always Eurosceptic, but drawing into the idea of leaving the EU was really around the Lisbon Treaty and, yes. and the withdrawal of a promise of a referendum on that, uh, combined with then the the, the um, economic uh, meltdown, uh, which affected, obviously, the Eurozone particularly badly. Uh and it was really since then that uh, I was investigating do we actually need to be in the European Union? Uh, and it was obvious to me that every British government had have avoided holding a referendum on any integrationist treaty uh, because they knew they were likely to lose. And in yes. fact, the whole British political class uh, knew, at a subconscious level at least, that, that most ordinary British people hated being governed by the European Union.
1: So in terms of... Um yeah you're a skeptic working for the daily express which is very Eurosceptic. skeptic what was that like as a, as a as a as a place of work the express i mean working for richard desmond is notoriously hard mm.
0: well you see richard desmond um he certainly knows uh how to negotiate we could have done with him negotiating this deal i think they would have been paying us to go by the end but um He's certainly a ruthless cost controller. He was criticised for not investing enough in editorial. But one thing I'll say about him, you know, he always he always paid his wages and salaries on time and made his pension contributions, uh, uh, which is probably better than having a sort of airy fairy liberal regime, which which overspends and promises everyone in the world and then runs out of money. Uh, You know, and and axes everyone, and that's also happened in newspapers. So, uh, yeah, Richard was was a tough proprietor, uh, but he always, in my uh, experience, honoured his obligations.
1: In terms of the sorts of stories that the Express would major on, Mm. the sort of jokes about it was either the weather, Madeline McCann, Mm. or I think Diana. There was one other thing that sort of the cliche of it.
0: Uh, Probably something to do with, with. health and aging and miracle cures for <laughs> yeah, various yes. ailments does this think.
1: cause or cure cancer and that that's sort a different of thing. thing every week yeah. um, d- d- did you ever feel not compromised not the right word but that the direction of the paper wasn't necessarily the sort of organ that you would have ideally been working for
0: um occasionally uh, possibly more around the 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 Madeline McCann thing where i think the express along with lots of other uh, tabloid newspapers you know really uh the industry kind of lost its uh its uh, grip a bit there you know so uh that was uncomfortable but but you know my my bit of the the output was uh the leader columns and the views on politics yeah. and you know fortunately most of the time I was always uh with the grain of the editor and able to do some quite exciting things
1: remember Richard Pepiat's departure, and I'd never heard of right, him until he yeah. went. He wrote this incredible... I mean, almost whether you agree with him or not, it's a phenomenal resignation letter where he talks about the cross-promotion of all the different Desmond brands, and I think he right. says something like... To Desmond, he said something like, you may see a perfect circle, I see a never-ending spiral of shit, or some words to that effect. Mm. Um, do you think sometimes... I mean, he was worried about, particularly... Um, I think it was a story about the EDL becoming a political party. Right. Um, and he felt that it was unnecessarily, I think, promoting the EDL or promoting far-right politics. Was Mm. was that ever a concern for you when you were there? Uh, No, not
0: really. And I have to say, um, people who leave with that degree of vitriol, it makes me wonder, you know, who is the hypocrite here? Surely the hypocrite is the person who, for years at a time, is earning a living uh, from uh, a media uh, publication. Uh, that they're viscerally opposed to across the whole value system. So uh, perhaps there was a sense with with that individual of, of trying to cleanse themselves for a a circle, a social circle, perhaps a future employment circle that uh, that they had their um, their eyes on. I was fortunate in you know most of the political issues that the paper dealt with, whether it be uh, the campaigns to reduce uh, immigration or or to um, clip the wings on inheritance tax. Uh, you know, a, a, across the piece, um, Euroscepticism. Uh, that that you know, I was working with the grain of my beliefs.
1: So you become a UKIP MEP. So how mm. do you make that transition? Did Farage court you and, and woo you? How how did you end up? Yeah. Getting, making the transition. Well, well, really, it was um,
0: as I say, post Lisbon Treaty, I'd become a lever. Uh, but uh, we still had the issue that, you know, Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister. We were running into the 2010 election, so the paper was very gung-ho for David Cameron uh, to get Gordon Brown and Labour out of power, Uh, and I thought, you know, that was fine, and Cameron had made this cast-iron guarantee of a referendum on Lisbon, (laughs) but then dumped that before polling day. Uh, So, obviously, we weren't very impressed with that, but still... Uh, You know, in the reader's eye, you know, Labour and Gordon Brown or Tories, David Cameron, the choice was fairly simple. So, But after that uh, election had taken place, uh, so we're talking about the summer of 2010, I went away on holiday and was thinking about the next big thing. And it was obvious to me that there was no good news coming out of the EU for the UK for a very long time. Uh, And we're talking about the Greek bailouts and things like that were were going on. Uh, So I came back from my summer holiday and pitched it to the editor that that you know, to be Eurosceptic was no longer enough and that actually the bar was being raised and if you yeah. wanted to be a genuinely Eurosceptic newspaper that reflected the views of millions of people, uh, it was time for a newspaper to step forward and say we should leave the European Union. Uh, so we did that in November 2010 and it just took off massively uh, with the readers and that gradually kind of lured me into UKIP politics because uh, I went along to... Uh, a meeting of the of the Commons and Lords combined Better Off Out group. Uh, and there were only about 12 people there, you know, uh, two of whom were Mark Reckless and, and Douglas Carswell. So, yeah, yeah. so the actual number of MPs from the Tory party who were declaring that we should leave the EU was microscopic. Uh, and so I saw the need immediately for UKIP as a political party dedicated to the cause. And obviously, Nigel was coming back for his second or third leadership spell even then. And he just had the charisma to capture the moment. Uh, And so we found ourselves working more and more together, me on the express, him leading UKIP.
1: You get elected in 2014 in that incredible high watermark where UKIP topped the national poll. Yeah,
0: and I'm very proud that I I started that campaign as director of communications uh, for UKIP, but then... Uh, Before the campaign really got going, Neil Hamilton, who'd been the campaign director, fell out with Paul Sykes, who was the chief uh, donor. And so from that moment on, I was campaign director too. So it's a very proud moment to have been up against Linton, Crosby and whoever Labour had, and to actually have, have beaten them.
1: David uh, Axelrod, I think it was back then.
0: Right, he sounds like a... Uh, a uh, Porn star. Well, I was going to say one of these soft metal... uh he oh, uh, yeah. guitarists for it Europe does, or yeah. something. He yeah. does, well,
1: of all the band names to choose, how <laughs> ironic. Right. Um... Yeah, I mean, it was remarkable, that result. Mm. And it was was a huge vote. I think 4 million votes in the general election, let alone 2014.
0: Yeah, I think we got about 4.2 million in that European election. And then, amazingly, the next year, we almost held that number of votes, despite the general election being a very close race between Cameron and Miliband. And we'd really connected then, uh, 3.9 million votes, uh, but obviously crushed by first-past-the-post.
1: Well, that's it—the the British voting system. Mm. If only we had a more European approach ah. to uh, to our parliamentary elections, <laughs> it might have ironically helped. Um, I mean, it, there must have been just around the mood of the party at that time mm. a sense that, and I suppose in, in a way, the referendum is is the great achievement of UKIP. It's you get mm. the one thing that that mm. makes you UKIP and not makes you a Tory, I suppose, or any other party. Mm. Um, there must have been a, a feeling, perhaps, in the camp that this you could get a genuine parliamentary breakthrough in, in the House of Commons. There was actually, and it,
0: it was post the euphoria of the European election win. You know, there were front pages of the Telegraph quoting polls they'd done that showed UKIP could win forty seats, and yeah. uh, I never really believed that. Um, I always thought the advantages of incumbency and those two big parties with all their money and all their networks would 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 squeeze very heavily. But I'm a, it did mean that the that UKIP running into the twenty fifteen general election overstretched itself with the number of target seats and things yes. like that
1: so it would have been better just focus them on
0: maybe five or six seats five or six ra- think, really pump yeah. resources into those whereas i think we ended up with about 30 target seats which was ridiculous
1: uh, but exciting times for the party, and then you're mm. propelled into the European Parliament. Yeah. I mean, obviously, your years as a, as a political uh, editor and, and correspondent would, mm. would give you some insight into what it's like over there. But mm. what was it like as an experience going from reporting on it to then having to be a politician for real?
0: Uh, it was it was quite an intense sort of setup phase where you had to find uh, you know an office in 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 one of the towns or cities in the east of england in my case recruit staff of course yes uh, just just learn the physical layout of everything yeah how it worked uh, sit on a committee uh make speeches in the plenary session it, it yeah i i remember feeling quite exhausted by the end of 2014
1: uh, well, that's a bit, I was thinking about the European, but of course, domestically. I mean, you're, if you're a member of the European Parliament, your constituency is an entire region. Yes, The whole right. east yeah. of England. Yeah. And there's four or five of you. Yeah. Um, of different parties representing yeah. that, that part. Well, I mean, seven in in the case of the east of England. My Yes, God, absolutely. A huge amount. And then, obviously, you've got the European aspects of Strasbourg and Brussels and yeah. all that. I mean... Were there any positive? Did you did you gain any positive experience from being and have you from being a member of the European Parliament? Are, are there any positives to the way the system works over there in, in your mind?
0: One the, the the positives for me were a, a platform to campaign to leave the, the European Union. Yeah. Um, I never made any secret I wasn't going over there to be part of the furniture, yeah. um, and I don't think it works fundamentally uh, because. Even on mainland Europe, people's affinities are still primarily to their nation-state. So I think trying to make too many collective decisions uh, at the supranational EU level, it just doesn't work. And you can see that, for instance, with the Eurozone. I mean, when Germany reunified, for instance, the West Germans grumbled about the cost of the reunification and the amount of money going to the East. But because they were all Germans, they bore it. But you saw when, when Greece needed bailouts the Germans were not interested you know so fundamentally there's just not enough social solidarity between the different countries to make this this system work and and i saw You know, nonetheless, the European governing class in the European Parliament and the Commission are totally ideological about their their mission and and not confronting this basic fact.
1: But in terms of the function of it and how Mm. it works and the relationships with... um, I think, in in a way, you know, people sit in these groupings, don't they, Mm. uh, that are international. Yeah. That must have been quite helpful to, to be able to sit with other Eurosceptic parties and to share ideas and network and things like that.
0: Yeah, although I think... Back then, in 2014, it can be overwritten uh, how Eurosceptic many other parties were because, uh, you know, even, you know, the most Eurosceptic parties from other countries, uh, very, very few of their MEPs were declared as wanting to to leave, you know. So so, uh, Britain remains and is still kind of ahead of the curve, as I would see it. But since then, we've obviously... The most Eurosceptic parties in Germany, in Italy, in France, in Sweden, uh, pretty much all over Austria are gaining traction all the time. But they are coming from a much lower base. I mean, I would argue for in, in the United Kingdom, had we had a referendum on anything to do with European integration for the last quarter of a century, there would have been a big vote against it. So so we are different. And it's the, I think it's the island nation... Uh, it's having a a global outlook, Uh, it's partly our history, uh, but we've never been happy uh, European Union
1: members. Um, So how were you treated by, firstly, other British MEPs, Mm. and secondly, European MEPs?
0: Well, without sort of naming names, I think you can say that the other British... MEPs, apart from the few in the Conservative Party who were better off outers. And then Helmer
1: came across, didn't he? So I suppose. Yeah,
0: I think he'd already come across by the time I joined, yeah. Uh, But great resentment and sort of snobbery. Uh, that we were appalling and vulgar. I think that was the general feel you got. Uh, there were one or two uh, people I would exempt from that. Claude Moray's, for instance, the London Labour MEP. Always very friendly, very interested in political ideas. There were one or two people like that. But generally, uh, it was as if you know, a bad smell had entered the, uh, the Parliamentary Chamber.
1: <laughs> and did you feel a need to disprove that and, and behave in a way that was becoming? Or did you think, well, if you're going to give me a label? Well, I think
0: I, most of my colleagues would look and say I'm, I'm probably one of the more restrained, or was one of the more restrained UKIP uh, MEPs. Uh, there were certain ones who perhaps even even reacted uh, with with even more outlandish behaviour. You know, David Coburn's uh, the Scottish UKIP MEPs. Yes. His performances in the in the chamber. Uh, are quite something. So so it's a sort of mixed response.
1: And I suppose relationships amongst the UKIP group came to, um, well, literally ahead. Poor old Stephen Wolfe's when um, Mike Hookham hmm. knocked him out. I mean, that well, was incredible.
0: that's not really what happened. Isn't it? No. I mean, I was one of the people who was, uh, I was there, as it were, right? Yeah. So, so there, we were sitting in the sort of big committee room. Yeah. Uh, and... Stephen and Mike got into a dispute and Stephen said to Mike well if that's the line you're taking you, you better come outside with me and Mike being a sort of uh, hard nut from Hull even of yeah. uh, advancing years ex uh, wasn't going to say no in front of his peer group so they then both of them went out into this anteroom, room yeah. and so no one actually other than those two saw what happened in the anteroom, room but about 10 seconds later Stephen came uh, flying him backwards at quite a rate of knots through one of the doors, um, uh, he may have hit his head while falling. Then, but but that was several hours before uh, his his later collapse on, yes. on one of the corridors in, in the in the parliament. So, only the two of them know what happened. But I do know Mike is absolutely insistent that he never uh, struck him a blow.
1: But might have shoved him or pushed him, on.
0: Well, I, I mean, it's all <laughs> guess, it's all <laughs> guesswork apart Being from, basting, from, from the two, said, the two principles.
1: I remember Mike. Um, so this dispute, we should just remind people, who perhaps. Don't mm. remember Mike Cookham and, and Stephen Wolfe. Uh, this was, and uh, let me try and get this right. Um, when Farage was uh, just resigned, and there was was it talk of leadership? Yes, what it, the
0: context was that that Nigel had gone Diane James had won the leadership that's right. and then she stood down that's during right. this Strasbourg week which yeah. which left the leadership open again and Stephen Wolford had immediately declared he was standing it was then revealed I think on Guido Fox, that Stephen had been in talks with the Conservative Party about defecting to them
1: that's right
0: uh, so that didn't go down well uh, with parliamentary
1: colleagues and a sort of crisis meeting was arranged to Discuss all this. Uh, I just remember the TV footage of, of Mike Cook and saying they settled it man or ill manner, which was, I mean, I was making a telly show at the time and it was, uh, it was wonderful. Um, yeah. fun. I mean, as long as Stephen Wolf was fine, obviously, because the, the photo of him on mm. the floor was quite shocking. Mm. Um, but it did just seem, you know, if, if you know, these other British MEPs are, are sort of judgmental towards the UKIP group mm. and then you end up sort of scrapping with each other. Yeah. And kind of, I suppose reinforces the stereotype a bit.
0: I think that's a good phrase. Reinforcing stereotypes. That's what happened.
1: Um, just, I mean, there is, there's always been a, a rebel part of the UKIP brand, hasn't mm. there? There's almost been, I suppose, in a way, because it's not the Tory party, it attracts people that, um, Behave differently, and I mean that—not. I don't mean that to sound disrespectful. I mean mm. it attracts rebels who will break party lines and will be a bit more outspoken and will yeah. push the envelope a bit.
0: I think that's true—a sort of maverick uh element. I think all smaller parties kind of have that, and you know, one inspects one's own psyche to think. Uh, I think I've got a natural affinity with the underdog, for instance. Yeah. Uh, support Cambridge United (laughs) and when I had a chance to pick a big London team I picked West Ham and I worked on the Express uh, despite having occasional offers from the Daily Mail and then UKIP and not the Tories and even now when I've left UKIP it's been to help revive the SDP rather than to jump into an establishment party.
1: But I suppose on on Brexit you're now the establishment because you won the referendum.
0: Well, it would be nice if it was ever implemented, wouldn't it? <laughs> but, you know, two and a half years on, nothing's happened apart from continual efforts to, uh, to sidetrack and block uh, the decision being implemented. So, no, we're not the establishment.
1: Do you think we will leave the European Union?
0: I think so, yes. Um, I think <clears throat> uh, any Conservative Prime Minister has, at least in name... To leave, or the Conservative Party completely shatters. I mean, the polling that I was looking at recently, I think 71% of Tory inclined voters are pro leave. You know, uh, I think given all the promises from the manifesto and the whole mission of the government was to leave the European Union and Theresa May's Lancaster House speech, and effectively, Theresa May took two thirds of the 2015 UKIP vote by being UKIP in the 2017 election, and being the leader of the governing party, she actually made what seemed to be be a better Brexit offer than UKIP could make. Um, I think if they don't actually deliver leaving the European Union, um, anything could happen to the Conservative Party, but, but it won't be back in government for a very long time. So for that reason, I think ultimately some form of Brexit does happen.
1: Do you have a preference on which Conservative you would like to see deliver Brexit?
0: Well, I mean, short term, and I think he should have become prime minister after the referendum, would be Boris Johnson, because he's someone with the gusto, uh, the belief, the big picture uh, to kind of reset everything and get the country or a large part of the country confident and behind actually doing the job uh, of getting out of the European Union. Uh, I mean, longer term, if, if the Tory leadership changes after whatever Brexit settlement has happened... I wouldn't necessarily see him as the best bet for, for a, to be a long-term prime minister. But but if they're going to change uh, prime minister before we actually leave, then I would hope Boris Johnson uh, would be it. But it doesn't look like they're going to.
1: And he's a maverick.
0: He's a maverick, but he's, he's brave. And I, I don't really agree with these people who say that he walked out of the cabinet in order to advance his own leadership ambitions. I actually think... He, he has probably harmed his own leadership ambitions by being so virulent and so strong against Theresa May and her policy uh, because I think he believes in it. I think he believes, and as he said on the television the other weekend, that, that he would take responsibility, he sees the vision, uh, and he, in common with me, shares the view that, that, that what she's proposing is the worst of all worlds. Do you ever talk to him? Uh, I bumped into him a couple of times during the referendum campaign, uh, and I knew him vaguely before that. I think we had maybe one lunch, but no, not not in, in recent times.
1: Because David Cameron had been uh, very disrespectful about UKIP, mm. closet, is, closet races, swivel-eyed loons and fruitcakes, I think. Or, that sort in, of thing. Or in a different order. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, other Tories perhaps weren't as antagonistic and were prepared to talk to you. Uh,
0: yes. Uh, nonetheless, in the run-up to the referendum, I think... Uh, you know, which is when I really kind of fell out most badly with Nigel. Uh, the, 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 there had to be a hard calculation about what sort of offer will get Brexit over the line with 50% plus one of the electorate. Yes. And a view was taken by people uh, in Vote Leave, which was quite a Tory organisation, that the sort of UKIP inclined segment was already going to vote to leave the EU and so they had to put together something that that would draw in you know moderate middle-class Tories kind of working-class Labour people who would nonetheless never vote for for UKIP and there had to be this sort of sheen of total respectability um so that there was a big breach and you know I was one of the few senior UKIP people that was pragmatic about that and so I I supported vote leave Uh, uh, and not Aaron Banks, who Nigel wanted to run the the campaign, and I don't regret that for the moment. It's the right choice, but nonetheless, uh, there was, uh, I think, a lack of respect among the the vote-leave hierarchy for all that Nigel had achieved to get us to that point.
1: So, in terms of your relationship with Nigel, then, did that Mm. that suffer as a result of that?
0: Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, he wanted... Uh, Aaron Banks initially in the form of leave.eu and then this grassroots out thing yeah. uh to get the designation to run the campaign uh and I could just see that we'd have a sort of 30 to 35% ceiling I felt uh if if we went down that path uh and it would be the die hard vote and we needed to target the waiverers. so what actually then happened, oddly enough, was um, it worked very well because we had two campaigns. We had the middle class conventional vote leave and then we had uh, Nigel and back by Aaron kind of in the working class, the former pit villages, yeah. the old seaside towns with a much more hard immigration focused message. And, and, and the two segments came out, and no one could say it was collusion because the two campaigns genuinely <laughs> did hate each other's guts. But, you know, if on that Wembley final debate that you, you'd had Nigel as the main voice rather than uh, Boris mm. Johnson and, and Gisela Stewart, I think that could have been used by the Remain campaign to uh, to kind of throw some, some accusations and scare people off.
1: And, and has your relationship with Nigel improved? Yes, absolutely. Oh, good. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because in uh, there's a quote from 2015 oh. where he said he was, a, a, he was snarling, thin-skinned and aggressive. Well, I
0: think, actually, it was a partial quote. It was in The Times. And uh, I say, I was actually attacking a couple of the people or criticising a couple of the people who kind of run his campaign down in Thanet. So I think the, the full quote would have been uh, allowed to come across as snarling, thin-skinned and aggressive. Oh, I However, I did then apologise because... Uh, it wasn't really fair uh, in that Nigel had been suffering a lot of back pain during the campaign and I kind of, I knew this. Uh, and, you know, everyone was under incredible pressure cooker type pressure. Uh, and so I shouldn't have said that publicly.
1: Uh, so things have repaired with Nigel and you've both oh. left UKIP. You, yes. Nigel, Susan Evans, Paul Nuttall. Yeah. Lots of people have gone. Um in protest at Gerard Batten's leadership yes. and the direction he's taking the party. So just in terms of the departure, mm. did you all agree to leave together? or were they all No, and I'm
0: quite pleased to say I was the first of that group of the senior and well-known people to go. Yeah, uh, And it's <coughs> over, you know, Gerard Batten. There was a decision by the UKIP NEC that any discussion of, of Tommy Robinson's potential membership of the party should be left until after Brexit had been settled one way or the other and then there would be a debate about what direction the party would go in and people who weren't happy how that resolved could leave quietly. And that seemed to me a sensible compromise. But immediately after that NEC, National Executive Committee ruling, Gerard then announced that he was making Tommy Robinson his policy advisor and planning a big march with Tommy Robinson at the centre of it. Uh, and I took the decision then, that's not on. Because when I stood in 2014, one of the things I was able to say as a UKIP candidate, and that I think nearly every UKIP candidate made the point, was that we were the one party uh, that forbids uh, a membership by anyone who'd been in the BNP or the EDL. Now, Tommy Robinson had not only been in the BNP, but he'd actually founded uh, the EDL. Uh, and so that was completely nothing to do with the, the offer that UKIP had made voters in 2014 Um, and you know Nigel felt the same way Um, I reached the point where I went was was the day after a public meeting I'd held in Hereford uh, sorry Hereford Hartford Uh, (laughs) it's important to remember I'm the east of England MEP Hartford uh, on a Monday night and it was a sort of Brexit SOS public meeting and it became dominated by discussion about Tommy Robinson and whether he should come into UKIP and some of the people advocating for him were were sort of quite sort of hard nut people that none of us recognised from any previous UKIP gatherings and I could just feel that a level of infiltration was going on and we've reached a point where I thought, you know, I just cannot have this
1: and so I'm leaving. I mean some people not necessarily about yourself, but maybe about mm. Nigel will say, well this is a guy who put up a breaking point poster, you know, that that mm. that spread propaganda about immigrants that that contributed to an atmosphere in the referendum where hate attacks went up on immigrants and now all of a sudden Tommy Robinson is a a line in the sand some people might be sceptical about people you know who were UKIP candidates who probably Mm. got people like Tommy Robinson to vote for them.
0: Uh, Well I mean you know some of the people who are now following Tommy Robinson probably did vote for UKIP but if you think about it Uh, all the establishment parties were kind of lauding the collapse of the BNP, Mm. right? They had nothing to do with them. It was that there was a respectable constitutional party addressing the issues that the establishment parties uh, had ignored and a non-racist alternative. Uh, And that was what led to the collapse of the the BNP, for instance. So I think Nigel's point is that he's always wanted to to talk quite sort of tough messages on sensitive subjects. Uh, and But what's been absolutely vital as part of that is to make it clear, you know, we are, you know, we're a non-racist party, you know, with people from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds. I'm talking we as UKIP here, sort of slipping yeah. into the, the, the kind of old uh, <laughs> psyche. Uh, and, um, you know, the ban on the far right and the kind of the racial right uh, was absolutely core and essential to that um, and it is qualitatively different uh, yeah. what Nigel was talking about uh, you know to what uh, people who have been in the BNP and the EDL talk about.
1: Did you ever find yourself at UKIP meetings when members are talking about things ever thinking oh god this is a bit it's a bit too much for me and UKIP mm. you know I'm sure there are UKIP I mean I've sat in Labour Party meetings where people mm. said things that made my sort of eyes roll um, the Land Tory party meetings. I mean, there yeah. must have been times when you and UKIP we thought, we're in danger of pandering to dark forces here.
0: Well, I would say there, were, it, there was a fringe element whose kind of, uh, uh, I mean, UKIP was obviously a patriotic pro-nation state party, but there was always a fringe element whose, whose sort of national pride kind of teetered on the brink of that kind of ultra-nationalist blood-and-soil type thing, but they were a very small... Minority, and they were never in charge of the direction of the party. So, yeah, of course, there were times when, when you had to make clear, actually, what you've just said is completely not what this party is about. You know, this this party was about uh, pride in the nation and wanting national sovereignty, and people from all kinds of different uh, social and ethnic backgrounds being able to unite in pride of, of their country. And for instance. The nation state is actually a great progressive force. Uh, We wouldn't have a national health service if we didn't have pride in the nation state. So, you know, I hear these labor people saying they oppose nationalism in all its forms. And I just think that's crackers.
1: Quality sleep is essential.
0: That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: So when you hear... Um, I mean, UKIP for a long time were, 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 a, were a, a rich well of um, funny political stories of, mm. you know... you know. I mean, I suppose some of them were just council candidates in the backwater, yes. some of them, but UKIP candidates provided a lot of tabloid fodder for a what while. Sort like of
0: gay weather type Gay stories, weather and yeah. all that
1: sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, in terms of how the party dealt with that, I mean, I, I always took, <clears throat> maybe oddly, having worked for the Labour Party and, and mm. encountered some Labour Party members, and that was during the Blair and Brown years, that had yeah. peculiar views on things. You'd think, well, every party does have its weirdos. Yes. And maybe you could, were treated a little too harshly, because you could go to any party meeting, up, and you could find yep. weirdos in the Lib Dems, the SNP, the Tories, the Labour, all of them. Yeah. Politics does attract some strange people. Yes. Um... But there did seem to be a particular <laughs> a hmm. particular wellspring with UKIP. Do you think UKIP did have more people that had strange views or were they just treated more harshly?
0: I think uh largely in that twenty fourteen campaign for the European elections, there was a massive establishment media effort. To send out messages to the general public, this is not a safe or respectable party to vote for. So there was a big operation, and you would have, you know, the Mirror Group and their allies in in Hope Not Hate combing through every CV of every uh, UKIP candidate, and then you would have the Times, possibly at the behest of of the Tory Party, who half of them were related to at the time, doing a a, a similar job, um, uh, and that just meant UKIP needed to work. Twice as hard with a very small kind of central organisation to try and weed these people out, uh, but I don't think as well. I mean, some people in you keep think it's so un, you know it's so unfair. There's that famous quote about a politician uh, complaining about the media is like a sailor complaining about the sea. But yeah. um, I don't you know. And some people said, well, there are ex-BNP people in the Labour Party, and no one seems to put the microscope on them. But but my answer to that was that's because. No one out in the country thinks the Labour Party is at risk of turning into some kind of white supremacist organisation. But coming from the part of the political spectrum UKIP does, it's understandable that UKIP should have to work harder at that. So, you know, no use complaining about it. But I think, yeah, there was a big operation to, to, to find nutcases and mavericks and try and send out the message. This is what they're all like.
1: In terms of some of the people that have led UKU in recent years, we'll talk about Mm. Baton more, but um, quite apart from temporary leaders and Farage's sort of in and outs, um, the peculiar situation with Diane James, Mm. where she let the leadership go so quickly. I mean, was there something Mm. else going on there?
0: Well, I don't think Diane ever wanted to stand. Mm. Um, The situation was after Nigel wanted to stop being leader, the obvious choice was Suzanne Evans by a country mile the best candidate yes. who could have broadened out the party's appeal, but there was a lot of jealousy towards Suzanne, who'd kind of arrived uh, very quickly and and had authored and masterminded the 2015 manifesto, which was by by all critical sides. People said, "Well, that's actually that's a very good effort by UKIP." Uh, so she was the sort of coming person, but uh, but seen, you know, as perhaps a Tory, a centrist, and, and the sort of grumpy, grumpy <laughs> so UK was, to was out to, to knock her down. Yeah. Uh, so she was actually banned from that leadership contest. Uh, and from
1: standing in the London Mayoral. Yes, and president. she was
0: wiped out of that, even though she was the outstanding candidate. I think had she got into the London Assembly, you know, she would have been unstoppable to be a future party leader. But so... Uh, she'd been banned, so... Uh, by me, Farage? Well, by the UKIP National Executive Committee, but I, I think Nigel wasn't wasn't restraining them, put it like that. Uh, and then uh, Suzanne and I and others um, supported a woman called Lisa Duffy, who was a great grassroots UKIP organiser. You were her running mate. Well, I wasn't exactly a running mate, so <laughs> there was only one job, but nonetheless, she started getting traction with the membership. And I think... Over, in Nigel's camp in the party, there was a bit of, of shock and, and worry and and they were thinking that Suzanne and Patrick's angle is going to take over the party through another means. So suddenly Diane, having just been on holiday in France all summer, was propelled into the contest. Uh, she didn't turn up to any hustings. She wasn't, in my view, the most willing of candidates. And so after 18 days as, as leader, she suddenly decided she didn't want to be leader.
1: So you talk about the sides of the party like that. Was it a mm. kind of Blairite, Brownite thing where actually the ideological differences aren't that big? They're there, but they're not mm. a big. And is it just a sort of personality thing? Or are there wings of UKIP that have different views on Brexit yes. and other things?
0: there are wings of UKIP. Not, not different views on Brexit, but... Uh, I mean, it's an odd analogy to say that there are three wings, because I don't think there's a creature alive that has three wings. But no. there were kind of three wings of UKIP, which was the, the Nigel wing. is really a Thatcherite, quite economically libertarian right wing. Uh, perhaps wants to float ideas about uh, privatising bits of the NHS. Not that bothered about corporate tax avoidance. He says, so that that's a traditional Thatcherite hard. Libertarianish right wing. Mm. Then you had people like me and Suzanne who kind of would define ourselves more as common sense centrists. And you know, I've ended up in in the SDP, but still passionately pro nation state and and national sovereignty, uh, but pro uh, public spending, pro resourcing the NHS uh, um, very well, and and very hot on the need to tackle corporate aggressive corporate tax avoidance, for instance. Yeah. And then you have Perhaps the Gerard Batten wing, which is more of the sort of ultra nationalist uh, uh, grouping within the party. So that I would say those were the three uh, clusters. And at times, we managed to have
1: uh, bun fights between all three, like a sort of Wild West saloon kickoff. Um, there was Paul Nuttall who yeah. led Yukim uh, led into the 2015 election. It was. Seven, se- 17. So, 2017. 2017. Yeah. So much has happened. 2017 yeah. election. Yeah. He feels that like so long ago now. Paul. Yeah. Um, he had a very hard time as leader yes. and was seen as gaff prone. I mean, was he as gaff prone as he was portrayed? Um, well, there were some gaffes, but I
0: think he had an impossible political context. He had a context where the Conservative Party, the Governing Party, the Prime Minister, became more UKIP than UKIP. And going into that general election, I mean, what what could we say as to why people should vote UKIP? What we could and did say was because these Tories are going to betray you. But Theresa May was standing in front of the doors of Downing Street... Uh, you know, uh, picking fights with Jean Claude Juncker and delivering the whole UKIP script that she was going to deliver, and she was head of a governing party with three hundred plus MPs, and there were we saying, yeah, but but we thought of it first, and and so you can understand that the political context was poor for Paul in a first past the post unexpected election, given that the party was exhausted anyway. There was, as the scouts might say, nothing down for us.
1: What I thought, and it was a purely cosmetic thing about mm. Paul Nuttall, that, that, um, and a few people noticed, was mm. he, when he became leader, dressed differently. He would mm. start wearing tweed hats and barber jackets and things they would never really seen him in before. Mm. Um, was that a deliberate decision to kind of look more UKIP? Was he trying to reassure a particular part of the party? Uh, no, I don't think so. And
0: to be honest, there were people who suggested to him that just turning up in a suit and tie... Might be better than you know a sort of slightly more peacockish yes, uh, shooting. At yes, time. absolutely. So so people did notice that um, he just dressed how he wanted to dress. I'm not sure that he'd necessarily not dressed like that before. I think it just might not have been noticed.
1: No, and then um, there was Henry Bolton. There was whose relationship with Joe Marnie was his downfall. Um, mm. Was he someone that you rated? Well,
0: I didn't know quite where he'd come from. He'd mm. stood for for Police and Crime Commissioner for UKIP, I think down in Kent, but I was worried that he didn't seem to have any record of ever delivering a UKIP leaflet for anyone apart from himself. You know, shallow roots in the party and initially I wasn't I didn't see the zeal for Brexit burn particularly bright in him. Uh, and there was a, a, a suspicion, sorry, by this time that Nigel was basically backing a series of seat warmers, yes. as it were, who would just occupy the seat until he was ready to return. And I think by the time we'd burned through Henry and that had been a disaster, there was a large element of UKIP members who, who had sussed that and thought, we're not having that anymore. And that's why Gerard Batten timed his run, as it were, perfectly, as someone who'd also been a founder member of the party. Uh, and whatever you think of him is nobody's seat warmer and had his own ideological agenda Uh, and he had arrived after I think the party had seen that Nigel had had landed it with a series of, as I would say, seat warmers I think that's slightly harsh on Paul by the way I think his was the political context was his biggest problem Uh, but that's how Gerard Batten took over the party really
1: So did you ever fancy standing for the leadership? No Why not?
0: Because, mainly because UKIP was too right-wing for me. I mean, I passionately agreed with it, obviously, on Brexit and saw it as the catalyst to enforce a referendum, and that had worked beautifully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I was always seen by the party, as I think Godfrey Bloom called me, Pinko Patrick, for instance. And when I was economic spokesman and I floated a couple of things, like, for instance, trying to make VAT more progressive by having yeah. a higher rate for luxury goods... You know, I got machine gunned down and I realised that... By Mike Hookham, probably. Well, actually not by Mike, (laughs) but, but, you know, I realised that the DNA of this party was well to the right on me. And, for instance, on climate change, uh, I think and I argued successfully to an extent that our approach should be to look at the the proportionality of policy responses, not to deny it was happening when 90% plus of the, the world scientists were telling us... It was, so I wasn't happy with outright climate change denial, for instance, as a policy. Uh, I wanted... Um, uh, I wasn't interested in flat tax, for instance, where where people pay the same rate of income tax, however yeah, tax high tax their income... The yeah, I mean, it would be a massive tax cut from the rich, as mm-hmm. Labour would and, in fact, did uh, portray it as. So we w- not only was it not correct as a policy, it wasn't politically viable either. So I'd, I'd seen that. that, you know, I didn't think I ever could lead you kit because of that
1: They're not part of you that thought actually you could lead it and lead it to a more sensible mm. calm place
0: uh well as i say i tried some things as economic spokesman and hit a kind of really hard wall of no this isn't us we're not going there and then also my friend suzanne uh i saw as somebody who you know had the appetite not into to lead the party, but, you know, she was a former broadcast journalist herself, so she's really excellent on television and radio uh, and energetic and, and wanted to do it. So so it made up... My view, I thought, uh, I once put this uh, as my ambition would be not to get the Oscar for, for, for leading Man or Lady, but Best Supporting Actor uh, would be ideal for me. But what
1: about... Um joining the Tories, was that ever an option?
0: Well, actually, I had a quite a serious offer to join the Tories in the early days of Theresa May. And I actually I walked around St James's Park with a very senior Conservative who wanted me to join. And I just reflected that while we were in the European Union, the mission hadn't been accomplished, so I, I felt I couldn't. Uh, but had they delivered a proper Brexit, and we then go into the next chapter, which would be who should lead the country post Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn, or a sensible centre right uh, person? I could easily have ended up in the Conservatives. But obviously, once the, the betrayal of Brexit, as I would see it, got underway and the full extent of Theresa May's connivance came out, say, at Chequers or probably even before that, uh, that stopped being an option.
1: So you're walking around St James's Park with a, mm. with a lovely place for a walk. Mm. I used to work around there. I used to love going there at lunchtime and getting a mm. getting a Mr Whippy and feeding the swans or whatever. You know, a yeah. really lovely part yeah, of yeah. London. You've got Horse Guards Parade at one end. You've got like, Buckingham Palace yeah. at the other. It's, a, it's such great a good place for you view
0: on the bridge and all that. Looking oh, lovely. Yeah. Oh, you get the
1: great view on the bridge. Yeah. And, the, and also, all those old, weird, sort of higgledy-piggledy um, yeah. down George Street. But there's a lot of political people work around there. And it's where a lot of yeah. political people go for their lunch. So yeah, yeah. high risk of being spotted.
0: Well, if I'd been spotted, I would, you know, it, it, it would have been someone who, you know, I'd known for a while and we both campaigned for Brexit. So, sort of, so what, really? But, you're
1: still, you know, you walking through a park with Boris. I mean, people are going to notice him.
0: Well, it wasn't Boris. <laughs>
1: so,
0: but I'm not getting into the game of it wasn't X, it wasn't Y. Yeah, I
1: mean, Chris Grayling's a tall guy. I mean, he'd stand <laughs> out a mile, wouldn't he?
0: Chris Grayling's tie knot is a thing of, uh, I won't say of beauty. I don't know if you've ever seen. He does no. this sort of full... Enormous double Windsor oh my that, word. that looks like a sort of uh, someone out of the Sweeney before they've unbuttoned <laughs> their their top button. Or uh, sort
1: of early noughties footballer <laughs> like Rio Ferdinand. Yeah, maybe so. Really yeah, big, I think um, so. You need such a long tie to carry that off, though.
0: Yeah, but I think if you're Chris Grayling and you're six foot five, you probably invest in long a sort ties. Of Trumpesque length, yes. <laughs> of, um, of tie. So that's against <laughs> Sir Donald Trump's length.
1: Um, well, that's interesting to, to sort of been attempted because I wonder now, I mean, firstly, when you left for the STP, and I think yeah. everyone else had this reaction, no one knew they were still going.
0: I was delighted, because everyone who sent me that message on tweet on Twitter, I didn't know this had existed, mm. I could reply to, well, you do now. And actually, the party had been growing quite quickly for over a year, yeah. and some of the, the UKIPers from sort of my wing of UKIP had been part of that that exodus joining them and uh, I was just I was I've been aware of them for a a year or so Uh, and I liked the the mix they've got a new declaration out it's very communitarian it sees the value of the nation state uh, but it hasn't got the sort of head-banging elements and it believes in a well-funded public realm and it believes in uh, those who are more wealthy and powerful paying a fairer share to fund that so so it kind of is more across the piece what I believe in.
1: Because it's seen historically, or it was historically, a kind of precursor to New Labour, a kind of, yes. you know, uh, the centrists in the Labour Party reaching out to the Lib Dems and then the you know the, the Alliance. Mm. Um, Owen was always a Eurosceptic, so I suppose yes. in a way that that legacy comes f- through that channel. Yes. But I think people would be surprised, nevertheless, to find mm. out that the SDP is a Eurosceptic party. People would presume yes. it was more... Absolutely. Well, well,
0: to be fair, part of the reason for the birth of the SDP was Roy Jenkins railing against Labour's then position of leaving what was then the European Economic Community, which I think uh, Labour ended up standing in 83. That was one of the the, the main planks. So yes, that that was part of the the identity when the party was born. But from 1989, uh, you know, and uh, through Maastricht and onwards, it's been a Eurosceptic party for a very long time.
1: And in terms of between 89 and now, Mm. does it has it had councillors elected?
0: Yes, it's had had uh, councillors in pockets in South Wales, in East Yorkshire. Um, but, you know, to be frank, it, I think it got down to 40 members at one point. Uh, but just in the last year, it's been mushrooming and I think it has huge potential, particularly if we get to a context where all the establishment parties are seen to be betraying Brexit to a greater or lesser extent and people... You know, out of 17.4 million people who voted for Brexit, how many of them are also fans of Tommy Robinson and therefore could bring themselves to vote UKIP? I would suggest not more than one to two million. So there's 15 million people potentially feeling furious at the establishment parties betraying Brexit and yet not defining themselves as extreme in any way and potentially looking for a moderate but very tough-on-Brexit alternative.
1: So you now re- represent um, the SDP uh, mm. and the East of England in, in the European Parliament. Mm. That will end on the 29th of March. I hope so. Um, so that as a that as a as a um, as a career will will end. Yeah. We, we will no longer send uh, people to the European Parliament to represent uh, mm. the UK. Are you going to seek to stand for office for the SDP in another institution? Uh, I may do. Um...
0: Uh, I haven't actually decided what I'm doing next. I, I think I might have one of these things that you've probably got. What they call a portfolio career. Yeah, I heard that phrase a couple of years ago. Yeah, You <laughs> can do various different things. Yeah, sort it's of great b- bits of speech writing, uh, a bit of uh, you know politics to keep yeah. my hand in there, and uh, uh, maybe maybe writing a few pieces again uh, for newspapers and websites. So, uh, but I haven't. You know, I am just trying to purely focus on getting the, the best. And cleanest Brexit we can.
1: But will you miss frontline politics?
0: Um, it's a as someone would say a hard game. That sounds like Paul Whitehouse being <laughs> being that that guy who talked about boxing as the hardest game. Oh, in the Hardest world. game in the world, eh? man it's, and boy. Yeah, exactly. Do you like the music of Frank Sinatra? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's 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 not as hard a game as boxing, I'm sure, but it is it's hard yes. and and uh, people are out to really. You know that because they see their own views as being in the national interest, they are quite capable of of making personal attacks to disadvantage someone of other views. So, so it's
1: tough. So not necessarily you you, you won't necessarily leave with a with a tear. In your, I mean it'd be it'd be, be momentous in a way. It'd be a momentous thing to be a part of. You know, your last mm. session in the European Parliament, whatever that is, mm. to be there with the all the British group that leave. Well, I'd hoped for a long time that it would be a
0: really euphoric thing to sort of take our flag home, as it were, mission accomplished. But then I suppose it was uh, December last year uh, when David Davis nearly resigned and this whole thing about this indefinite backstop as it's now become first drifted into consciousness Mm -hmm. was my alarm bells went off then and I suddenly thought, no, Theresa May is talking one thing but clearly a sellout is on, and then we've been through checkers and the withdrawal agreement. So to leave the EU under the terms of the withdrawal agreement as, as constituted now with the indefinite backstop, which is the prison cell, you're not leaving the wing to go through the doors and out into the wide world. You're being marched down a corridor and locked in solitary with bread and water, and the only way out is to ask to go back on the wing, is how I would see it. So if we left under those circumstances, there'd be no sense of euphoria whatsoever.
1: But just, I suppose, the, the the moment that Britain leaves, in inverted mm. commas, or definitely leaves the European Parliament, mm. I mean, have you thought, are there any plans for, like, drinks afterwards? Has anyone said, we need to do something on the 29th? We need well, to wave a flag or furl a banner or something? I had
0: thought of hosting a, a reception for people who've helped in the East, but I, I've never quite put that arrangement in place because of not knowing... Uh, what it would feel like, you know, I, I, yeah, it doesn't yeah, it look is, like it'll be a party moment, a party mood moment now, uh, if it's leaving on the miserable terms of the withdrawal agreement. But there is still time to improve that.
1: In terms of, um, are people already? I'm just trying to think of almost the, the sort of office politics of it. Mm. When you're when you're out in, in these European institutions, people saying. Yeah, I can't renew really your car park pass now because you're not going to be here I the 29th. Are, things, are they already saying, yeah, we're going to have to have that despat, Patrick? Uh, not really,
0: because, I mean, with the car park stuff, oddly enough, for a, for a UKIP, I'm a, a public transport obsessive, so I just get trains <laughs> everywhere. Uh, so I've never driven into the European Parliament anyway. But no, I don't think so. I think the formal rights of, of British MPs, MEPs, are still the same as the others.
1: But they're not. There's no sense. You're not getting emails saying, oh, actually, this one's in April, so you don't need to bother.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that there, there must be stuff like that that are on the agenda, yeah.
1: And how, how have the staff there, you know, I mean, there are all mm. sorts of bureauc- bureaucratic parts of it. Yeah. Do people say, oh, I'm going to really miss you? There's a little bit of that. There's quite some some so obviously
0: really nice people there, yeah. you know, and you get on with them. And, uh, you know, there's there's fondness and we don't mean uh, the people of Europe any harm at all. And I'm personally proud to be European. It's just not a particularly strong element of various collective identities. Uh, so, yeah, I think that there, there will be people who are, who, you know, will miss.
1: And what do you think in terms of now um, the future of UKIP? I mean, is it now doomed as a a far-right party?
0: Well, I think, it, it, you know, and partly, you know, one has reinforced this by leaving along with Nigel and Suzanne. You know, the message has clearly gone out there to the grassroots people who shared the, the same concerns as we do that the game's over. So just them leaving and new people coming in makes UKIP much more of a fundamentalist anti-Islam party focused on on the street as the political forum rather than, you know, uh, council chambers or or elected politics, yeah.
1: And in terms of what Nigel does now, is he going to join the SDP?
0: I think I can, with with almost complete certainty, say no, it's (laughs) not him. He's not a social democrat, he's a Thatcherite. So I would expect him, if for any reason Brexit got shelved altogether, I would expect there to be a Farage political vehicle standing in the European elections uh, and I think it would do pretty well because I think people turn to Nigel Farage to use him as a stick with which to beat the political establishment on matters to do with Euroscepticism so I think if Brexit had been altogether shelved and there was a new round of, of European Parliament elections a Nigel Farage party would do extremely well Possibly funded by Aaron Banks Possibly or, or you know, other people as well Yeah
1: in terms of Aaron Banks, um, how would you describe him?
0: Um, well, I didn't, you know, I never really had much to do uh, with Aaron. And, you know, a group of people uh, came... Deliberately? Yes, deliberately. Um, you know, I think he's actually quite a talented uh, um, debater in his own kind of uh, hell-raising way. And, you know, I have enjoyed his performances, for instance, at that select committee where he, he obviously had some lines that he was pre-armed with and he'd researched and they, that they'd all been... Every single committee member was a Remainer and the put-down when he was off to lunch and they'd already overrun by half an hour and you saw Damien Collins was the chair, yeah. the, sort of looking around, looking a chump. So, so Aaron has his moments. Uh, but Aaron, like Nigel, has said things about you know, getting rid of the NHS, which I know that if, if they're after a blue-collar vote that 90% of that vote turns its back. And so, so um, uh, you know, and who knows what's going to come out about Aaron? Uh, you know, he's obviously being investigated at the moment. He denies any wrongdoing. And so far as I know, he's telling the truth about that. But I didn't think that uh, a leave campaign led by Aaron Banks uh, had the slightest chance of carrying the nation as a whole.
1: In terms of Russian involvement in Brexit, Mm. Trump, everything else, I mean, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating on the last episode, we spoke to Philip Cowley, who's a great Mm. observer of these things. He said, what's remarkable about the last election is there's absolutely no suggestion that the Russians tried to hack that or interfere with right. the British general election of 2017. That does not say that it didn't happen. Hmm. It's remarkable that's not part of any narrative at all where we, we what, think... What, the that... Corbyn surge being well, maybe, or, or, in the Kremlin? or, or, the, or the May <laughs> surge, or who knows? Who yeah. knows? Um, who knows which side they'd necessarily be on? Probably I think Corbyn, probably Corbyn, we, Corbyn, we would them um, yeah. his questions over Salisbury, but... Um, during your time with UKIP and with mm. you know, Proximity to Nigel and Aaron, uh, however, however distant that proximity was, did Russia ever crop up in conversation?
0: No, the only, the only thing that uh, I wasn't keen on was that Russia Today was always up for doing interviews with senior UKIP people. To the best of my knowledge, I never went on Russia Today. If I, if I ever have done it, it would have been once and it wouldn't have been a studio appearance. But I think I always turned them down. Seeing them as a, a Kremlin-funded uh, channel, yes. But some of my colleagues, you know, practically lived on <laughs> Russia today, and I didn't approve of that. Yeah. And to be fair, actually, as I suppose one must be to Gerard Batten, Gerard Batten was always someone who was very sceptical about the Russian regime and Putin, um, and sounding alarm bells about don't get too close there. That's one thing I will say for Gerard. Uh, but uh, that's the only thing, really. There was never any suggestion that I heard of Nigel or anyone else senior uh, being in league with Russia.
1: Patrick, it's been such a pleasure to, to talk to you today. There's yeah, it's so been many fun. other, so yeah. many other things. I hope we're, we should. Try, I say this all the time, but we should try and do it again because there's so many other things, and who knows mm. where we'll be after the 29th of March.
0: We're on fast-forward politics at the moment, aren't we? We yeah? are indeed. Yeah. I
1: mean, as much as it breaks my heart, a lot of the things that are happening, it's certainly certainly very interesting. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, mate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, there you go, Patrick O'Flynn, and you can see why... In a way, I didn't want the discussion to end. I wanted to talk about Paul Nuttall for an hour. I wanted to talk about Farage for an hour, about about Jared Batten for an hour. Um, just get you know, in a way, you just want all the war stories of what it was like to be um, part of UKIP at all, let alone during a successful period, and also the moral conundrums that come with being part of UKIP. Um, so there was so much more to discuss, and I'm sure we will uh, discuss it um, at some point again in the future but a brilliant guest, really good at um, distilling ideas. uh, And what's crucial, really, is, um, particularly at the moment with the debate about Brexit, reminding yourself, on all sides, that people you disagree with are reasonable, thoughtful people and they have their own reasons for... Uh, Voting particular ways and for joining particular campaigns. And not everyone is the same and not everyone has the same relationship with their political party or with what they're trying to achieve. And I just thought it was so... In a way, it is reassuring. I suppose it was always the point of the show was to be able to sit down with people you disagree with, get on with them, ask them sensible questions and some not so sensible ones and just be able to talk about it in a reasonable way, whether you agree with what they're saying or not. And um, I really enjoyed talking to him. And I think I will always... I think, retain more of a joy for talking to people I disagree with. I just think there's, it, it, it's so much more stimulating to talk to someone you disagree with, in a civilised way, of course, otherwise you're just having a row. And I just find it it's so easy to just gravitate towards people you, you, that you, you agree with or that you have stuff in common with, and then you just end up reinforcing your own ideas rather than challenging yourself a bit. And obviously Brexit has become so divided, and I'm very passionate uh, in terms of believing that we should remain in the EU, but I just think... Have to engage with the other side more, and you have to engage in reasonable terms. And um, uh, I thought Patrick was was a great guest. Um, uh, you can always email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail dot com, as many of you have done. Um, Paul Riley sent me an email. I said, "Matt, over the last two months, I've been listening to the podcast, and it's great. Thank you very much, Paul." Funny, informative, and really interesting. Oh, Paul, please. He says, well done. It's a brilliant way to get people to listen to a wide spectrum of people they wouldn't give a fuck about otherwise and provide some valuable insight. He says, I live in London from Glasgow. That explains the language. And I wanted to come along to the Brexit through the gift shop thing, but literally nobody wanted to come along with me. All right, Paul. Rain it in a bit, Matt. Anyway, he says, alas, I'm sure my Tinder date will want to come to the Christmas special, so I'm going to buy a couple of tickets. Well, good on you, Paul. And, of course, you can still get tickets for the 19th and 20th of December uh, at the Leicester Square um, theater got an email here from Richard Horton. He says, hi, Matt. Great podcast with great guests. Cheers, Richard. He says, I'd suggest a new group of guests, current and past permanent secretaries of government departments. That is a great idea. As he points out in the email, he says, they may be banned by lifetime NDAs, but you could always ask. That's a great idea. Anyone out there knows a, a permanent secretary of a government department, do let me know. I mean, any... Like, the civil service angle is great, because I've spoken to special advisors, but the civil service is obviously a, a, a distinct organ in its own right. Jamie Fisher emails, said, Dear Matt, firstly, thank you for making the podcast. Jamie, it is a pleasure... Um, he says, it's something I've come to love over the past two years. almost sounds like you're in a resentful relationship with it. I've come to love it. I mean, at first, I, I hated it. He says, I tend to listen on my commute to university in Salford, where I'm studying politics. Ah, oh, wonderful. He says, the insights I managed to glean from your guest's offer get brought out in lectures and essays. Wow, wait, well, there you go. I'm being plagiarised willfully uh, by Jamie Fisher, and what a great place to study. Salford's an amazing part of the world. I once went on a tour of Hyde's Brewery there, if it's still there. Ten quid for a brewery tour and all you could drink afterwards. Woohoo! So email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. If you do work for a brewery and would like us to pop round there and do a brewery trip, then get in touch. Tweet me at Matt Ford and. Uh, I'm on tour next year, mattford.com slash live, at the two Christmas specials, 19th and 20th of December, which are now turbocharged with what is happening in the political arena. And, of course, let me know where you listen. But wherever you listen, thank you for listening. Thank you for those of you that help spread the word. Um, And if you could subscribe, if you could leave an iTunes review, all these things help other people find them and help get guests and all the rest of it. So if this is the last time you listen to the podcast before Christmas... Merry Christmas to you, everyone you care about, a happy new year, and I'll see you soon. This episode of The Political Party was produced by Daisy Knight.